0: Going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and so when you arrive there, you can stand for the scripture reading. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll start in verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, Will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for examples throughout your word, men and women who have exemplified Christ faithfully, who have walked with integrity, God, who truly are witness bearers of the image of God from years and years ago. God, we still read of these men, uh, read of women throughout your, throughout your word, God, and we are profited just in our heart to take courage, to stand, and in the grace of God, Lord, and in humility, submit to you, God, as we care for one another, as we love one another, as we see your purposes coming to pass in this world, God, and we champion your will, and we say with one mind, with one heart, and with one spirit, not my will, but yours be done. And may that be true according to your word, according to as your spirit is revealing truth this morning to us. May our heart be in align with yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen have a seat? Well, John mentioned this last week. He, he introduced himself. I thought oh, that was probably a good note. I should do the same. Uh, or two weeks ago when he preached for Charlie. Uh, if you're new to Bernie Bible Church, my name is Connor Patterson. My wife, uh, Jewel, is with my youngest right now, who's a little bit, both of them are a little sick. Um, her name is Joelle, and I have two others. Brielle my oldest, Calum's my son. You'll see him with the black cowboy hat, boots. And he might uh, try to uh, calf-tie you by the legs, If you're not careful in standing still. Uh, So that's a little bit about us. Uh, We work as well at His Hill. I'm the camp director there. And today is the first day of camp. So we have 126 campers coming this afternoon, which we are just thankful and humbled to the Lord to bring to us. Uh, Scholarship campers is is how we start. And then we'll have uh, six more weeks of overnight camp plus day camp this week. And so as mentioned in the announcements, to be praying for the campers, please, please do. Pray that they would know Christ. Pray that they would see Christ in us. Pray that the aroma of Christ would be immediately identified and known that it is Christ as soon as they walk onto the campus and walk in the, really in the entirety of their time here. And, um, and pray for us as well, that we'd be faithful to be busy, not just for busyness sake, but truly to be busy with the business of God that he has on our hearts. And we would be obedient to him, that he would fill us with energy, with love, compassion, and just a joy to faithfully serve him in purity and goodness. Um, so we, we desire that greatly, and we thank you for that beforehand. With camp, starting today, I, I think back to uh, my time when I was younger, 12 years old. Uh, I came to camp, to His Hill Ranch Camp from San Antonio, Texas. I have never hearing of comfort before in my life. After never hearing of his hill ranch camp before in my life, and that came through the influence of a friend. My friend called me up one day and he said, "Hey, I um, I want to go to this camp. It's in Comfort, Texas. Do you want to go with me?" And I said, "Of course, right? No questions asked. I don't need to know anything else. If you're going, I'm going." And so I accepted that invitation from him. I came to camp. I had a counselor named Gunter Herzog, which some of you may remember and know. And I had never met it, and still have yet to meet another German like him. He was loud. He was rambunctious. He was, you know, borderline. Well, oh, he was always sweating. But he was borderline just, just crazy. We TP'd the fish house. I can't believe Sheila let us do that, let him do that. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. I still don't know to this day how that happened. But more than anything... That was the week that I came to know Christ. And it was through the influence of my friend calling me and saying, he'd never been here before. I'd never been here before. Let's go to camp together. Change the course of my life. I was blessed to have great friends. Uh, growing up, one was literally three uh, houses down, and the other was like a block and a half away. We did everything together. The influence of friends is truly invaluable. Um, however, that influence, as good as it can be, like bringing you know, a friend to camp and you know, maybe for the first time hearing the gospel of Christ and believing in that gospel for the first time, there's also influence of friends that can be toward the negative and bad. It was how I was persuaded to pursue worldly lust and temptations. Some friendships kept me out of suspension in high school and others brought me into it. 1 Corinthians 15, comes to mind. Bad company corrupts good morals. It was the influence of friends that God used so greatly during my uh, summer after I graduated high school to influence me to consider staying for summer camp, or not for summer camp, but for a Bible school. I'd never considered that before in my life. I really thought that was crazy. Ryan was one of those and um, started to pray about it for the first time. I First time I ever you know, submitted myself to the Lord and submitted my plans to Him. And that ended up being another step that changed the course of my life and my family's life. It was that, those same friendships that encouraged me while at Bible school, in camp for four years, in university. That really challenged me to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through His Word. All to say... Influence is all around us. There are many different voices in this world today wanting to influence us. And the rise of social media and the rise of the internet, that has just become exceedingly and exponentially greater there. All of it calling for our attention. But it's the influence of friends that I find cuts the deepest, And I appreciated uh, was stuck with me for many years while I was at Bible school. Kelly was our dean of students and principal. Then he really challenged us as students to really consider what are you leaving your friends with? How are you influencing them? Is it just by shared likes, shared interests? I love football. We love football. We watch football, period. Is that all it is? Or is there something greater to our friendship that enters us into a word called fellowship together? Are we simply influenced by friends and what we like to do, our backgrounds, our past, whatever that might be? Or can we have, can we enter into the eternal spectrum and with these friends influence each other in fellowship? Influence each other toward Jesus bring one another, and continue to point one another in encouragement to Christ while today is called today. And then that you know, question kind of morphs and evolves into, is Jesus being seen in my relationships with one another, in my friendships with, with, with one another? Is that what is at the center of us? So within this context... Um, I I teach through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and I've kind of missed it. I kind of missed being in Samuel, and and uh, some of the students now staff had encouraged me to you know do something in Samuel, and so I was considering. I had written this, out this little sheet of about Jonathan, and I I teach Jonathan, but you know I only have so much time to go through these you know two. Uh, books of the Bible and so I've, I've only been able to really scratch the surface and I want this was an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into the life of Jonathan and how I've seen Christ so clearly in his influence upon David and so with that said within these chapters we're going to look at I hope you're going to see uh, a couple different words that really stand out that there's loyalty within this friendship within this influence there's submission within this friendship. There's humility within this fellowship. There is true, genuine love for one another. And all that tying together, there is encouragement amongst them. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse one through three, is a little bit of the background. So let's read that quickly and then we'll move on here. It says, David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. It is often assumed, wrongly, that David only faced one giant, Goliath. That's wrong on a couple of different reasons. A, we know from the appendix of Samuel, of 2 Samuel that he faced Goliath's brothers. And he almost died by Goliath's brothers and cousins when they were in a battle. And his faithful uh, men ended up saving his, de- saving his life that day and killed them. But it's wrong on the assumption as well because Saul was considered a giant. If you read back in 1 Samuel, it is very clear that Saul stood very much taller amongst any of the men in Israel. So much so that he would almost be called a giant amongst the Israelites. Right? He was that king that the Israelites had asked for to go out before them in battle. And God raised up from the smallest tribe of Benjamin in this little family of Kish a man named Saul. And he was a big man. But there are some differences with this giant named Saul. The first being this tension with Goliath lasted but a moment, but a day. Where the tension with the giant of Saul in David's life, we know, lasted for a little bit over 10 years. We know that David was allowed to kill Goliath, the giant. And he did so swiftly. He did so miraculously by God's strength. But he was not permitted to kill Saul. And David said multiple times, this is God's anointed. It is for him to raise up and to take down in his time. This was God's anointed, Saul was. That tension... Along with God's word saying, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. In my time, you do not seek your own life. You do not seek to protect yourself. Leads David to say this here in 1 Samuel 20. There is hardly a step between me and death. I think you could say right now he is emotionally, mentally at the end of his rope. He is exhausted. This hard relationship that he has served faithfully to Saul, has only been met with resistance, has only been met with really the exact opposite of love, but death, kindness repaid with vengeance. Someone once said, relational tension is the thing that ages us most. Right? David was Saul's armor bearer, supposed to serve him, and served him well even when he was going through um, his episodes, his, his psychotic episodes, David was serving him, and yet, in return, hated. We were made for relationship. We were made for relationship of encouragement. We were made for relationships that we are one with. We are made for relationships that bring about the best in us, the best being Christ in us. But what about relationships to which you are serving, you are helping, you are fighting for, and those relationships suddenly turn against you? Those relationships hate you. Those relationships haunt you. How does that go for us? How does that go for us in our personal life, in our mental life, in our emotional life? How do we respond to relationships like that? In the midst of this hard relationship with Saul, God has given a great grace. Grace. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Not, you know, literally one who is of blood, but a greater brother than that which is born of blood, a brother that is born of the Spirit. That is the greatest family bond we can ever have, is not one that is of blood, but one of the Spirit. The family of God. A brother in the family of God. And at the right time, David has Jonathan. The first time we meet Jonathan is actually back in chapter 14. I'm not gonna go back and really read anything there, just to quickly scan over that that chapter. Uh, this is where he and his armor bearer, they kind of break off from Saul and the Philistines that they're fighting that have invaded Israel. Saul's kind of wondering, kind of stuck in between two straits of what to do and how to do it, and he's really doing nothing. While Jonathan sees the problem, he sees the reproach that's coming upon Israel by the Philistines, and he stands up and takes action. He looks to his armor bearer it's one of my favorite accounts that I teach in Samuel. and he's like, "What are we waiting for?" Like this is a problem. This is God's problem, and he has so given us the capability to move against this problem. Any enemy of us is the enemy of God, and so we resist. And we fight back. And so, him and his armor bearer, they go up this crag and they're approaching this Philistine garrison. Right? The whole time you're wondering, like, as the armor bearer, like, what am I doing? There goes my life. Like, he was good to me for a little while. I knew he was going to turn on me eventually. You know, because the armor bearer can't say anything. So, wherever, you know, the guy goes that you're serving, you go. It's just me and Jonathan. Right? But there's, there's no, like, hey, Jonathan, what are you doing? There's no question. It's just where you go, I go. The armor bearer is faithful to serve Jonathan. And Jonathan, you know, reminds him and looks at him this great principle in scripture. And he says, is God restrained to save by many or by few? That is such a great principle to keep throughout our life. Is God restrained by any amount of quantity to do anything that he desires to do? Absolutely not. Is God restrained by human ability? Absolutely not. Is God restrained by our lack of education? Or maybe too much education? Absolutely not. He is not restrained by our past. He is not restrained by our failures. Scripturally, the only thing that hinders, doesn't remove, doesn't destroy, but Hinders the work of God is our availability. He will accomplish his desire. Scripture is sure of that. What God sets to accomplish, he will complete. But what can be hindered is our participation by our availability. And Jonathan, by that one simple question Is God restrained to save by many or by few? presents his life a living sacrifice available to God to be used. With no questions asked. And there's a great victory in Israel that day. Right? There's a sound of thunder as the uh, Philistines are running down the hill. And everyone looks and says, Saul has won a great victory this day. And Saul doesn't you know, say anything against it. He just accepts it. Yep, great victory. Great, great, great job I got there, guys. It was Jonathan that day who won the victory, ultimately. That's the first thing we know about Jonathan. Then we skip forward and we get into chapter 18. I want us to flip there and read the first four verses here. It's a simple section, but there is a lot that's happening historically here in this context. In verse 1 it says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. I think verse 5 is a a summary statement, but I also think it is included there right after verses 1 through 4 because of the action of Jonathan here. This is right after David has this incredible, supernatural, miraculous victory. A shepherd boy defeats a champion, Philistine, by Goliath. And right after that, two men of equal faith in God in the Father, have this beautiful friendship there. And Jonathan recognizes it. It's said that Jonathan is about 8 to 12 years older than David. 8 to 12 years older than David, yet he recognizes something in David similar to his own heart, not his interest. Not that they're great soldiers, not that they're valiant men, but he recognizes the Lord in David. And he loved him. As himself. True godly love does not take from one another, but it gives. It is sacrificial. True biblical love, by its very nature, is sacrificial. It thinks better of another than myself. Anything other than that is lust. It takes, it serves me and my purposes and my desires. True fellowship and friendship that is eternal seeks to better one another, to love one another, to encourage one another. And so Jonathan reaches out to David younger than him and makes a covenant with him. Now, usually in scripture, the one who makes the covenant is considered the stronger of the two. This is why throughout the Old Testament, you have God making covenants with his people. It's not the people making covenants with God because God knows they would fail that covenant. God knows they're not strong enough to keep that covenant. So God initiates the covenants. God initiates the promises because he's able to keep them and do far more abundantly in that promise than they could ever think or ask. And in this case, between these two, Scripture notes that Jonathan is the stronger of the two. He, makes, he initiates the covenant with David. But this covenant with David is not for him to be served but rather it is a covenant to serve the weaker vessel in David. He supports him. He makes a covenant with him. He lays down his rights to David and what God is doing in the life of David. The text confirms this by, by Jonathan laying down his robe, his sword, his bow, and his belt He's not just warm, and so he's kind of, you know, I'm about to make a covenant, I'm about to make a promise, and I want to get comfy here. All right, this is a specific action that he's saying all that I am and all that I am called to do with my life is at your feet, David. You are God's anointed, and this relationship is meant to be served. Though I'm older and though, in this sense, culturally stronger. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. He is next in line culturally to be king. This is what Saul says in chapter 20. I'll read these two verses for you later in this chapter, or later on a couple chapters from now. In verse 30 through 31. says, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Excuse me the language here. (laughs) Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And here it is. For as long as the son of Jesse, he can't, notice he can't even say David's name, right? Twice, the son of Jesse. As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul's like, listen, I've lost it, okay? I'm coming to an end. He knows that's coming quickly. But in his preservation of his line, his seed, his glory, his family, he's like, I'm not killing David for my sake anymore. I'm I'm trying to kill David for your sake so that you could be king and your line and your throne will be established. And Jonathan has said, thank you, but no thank you. Because what God is doing is above me. Because the exaltation of Christ's name and God's work in this world is greater than my own expectations. This is supernatural humility. This kind of perspective of a throne, right, power, position, it's almost unheard of in human history. It makes me think back to a, a book that I have on my shelf, Seven Men by Eric Metaxas. I've probably mentioned it before. I've probably given it to half of you to read uh, here. But excellent book, Seven Men that Eric Metaxas makes these little short biographies about. He has a, a counter to that. Uh, not counter, but a, a, another book, Seven Women. Both of them are excellent there. And just talking about seven people just that are noteworthy in human history. And the first person he starts with is George Washington. Now, we all know George Washington cutting down the apple tree, right? And we all know him for Valley Forge. We know him for the first president. What we don't often know, at least I didn't really know as much, was his humility. And when the Revolutionary War comes to an end, and this young, brand-new nation that is called the United States of America now is saying, okay, great, we've thrown off tyranny, but now what? (laughs) Who leads us? What do we do? They approached George Washington, and they said, would, would you lead us? And he said, no. I want to keep farming tobacco. <laughs> and so, confused, they come back, and they're like, he, he said no. And they're like, what? Go, go again. Make sure he knows he will lead the nation, right? He will be like a king. And so they go back. Did you hear what we he said? That you would be like the leader. Like, not just of the army, but like of, of everything. And he says... No. I said, no. I want a farm. What a guy. (laughs) I just want a farm. A simple, quiet life there. Uh, Obviously, we know that there's a lot that happens here uh, in that. But two things come from that. News gets back to King George III, and they said, hey, you know that guy that defeated us in America, George Washington? They asked him to become the president, basically a king over there. And he said no twice. And George III is quoted as saying, to refuse such a position of power as that, there cannot be a more humble man who has ever lived. To refuse that kind of power. To refuse that kind of opportunity there. We also know that when George Washington does have that position, one of the first things he does is he limits himself. Eight-year term. Who does that? That is supernatural. That is godly. That is Christ-like humility. It is what Jonathan is recognizing here. This mindset. It's going to come at a cost. This mindset, you know, to put David before him comes at a cost. He's at the expense here. But for Jonathan, the exaltation of what God is doing is far greater than the expense of his own expectations Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, there is wisdom. So now with that, let's get back to our chapter reading this morning in chapter 20. There is hardly a step between me and death, David said there. Chapter 20 serves to recall the covenant of chapter 18. It's to remind and just to reaffirm, to really say, hey, I meant what I said, that I'm here to serve you. Because now news is out, it's very clear, Saul's heart is to destroy David at any possible cost. And so Jonathan again makes the initiation, with David, and he says, let me remind you that the Lord is between us, that I am here to serve you. All I ask in return is that there would be no enmity between my seed and your seed as long as the day shall live. I am at your side, not to take, but to serve, but to give, but to encourage, and to submit to what God is doing in your life, and to be a part of that. We know, I know, and I'm sure you know equally, when you choose to submit and serve another, you can do that outwardly, but inwardly, we might hate it. We might choose obedience with our hands, but what is the posture of our heart when we submit? What is the posture of our heart when we serve? What is the posture of our heart when I see another succeeding? And I'm just coasting here. What's going on inside of me? Because that's what God sees. This book is incredible. First Samuel, back in chapter 16, reminds us God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And to Jonathan's credit, his submission and his service is not merely outward and external, but we know that it is true of his heart because what he chooses to do, and that is encourage. That is supernatural. To encourage what God is doing in one another's life in the midst of hardship is supernatural. I think in the flesh, we most naturally, when someone's going through something hard, right, we kind of sympathize. Man, I'm so sorry that you're doing that, That, that is happening to you. I'm so sorry that this has happened to you, that, you know, this is not what you wanted. I'm, I'm sorry. And we identify with the pain, but there's no way forward with sympathy. What Jonathan does is go one step forward. And he says, but this is what's Happening. This is what God is doing. And throughout this chapter, specifically down here in uh, verse sixteen, I'm sorry, verse eighteen, says Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you have hid yourself on that eventful day. And you shall remain by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, for there is safety for you, and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And then hopping over. To finish that section, verse 37 When the lad had reached the place of the arrow where Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. After Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master, the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, go in safety. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. David goes into the wilderness while Jonathan goes into the city there. Twice in those sections there, the Lord is between you and me forever. Despite the circumstances of what is happening, God is for you. God is for us committing to one another in faithful loyalty and dependable kindness to accomplish the will of God in your life despite what the circumstances need. That is what is true. Truth is what we need in a hard moment. We need truth in a way that encourages us and stimulates our hearts and minds to remember the promises of God. We need these encouragements and to simultaneously encourage one another to come alongside of one another to comfort us in the reality of Christ rather than the reality of our circumstances. It is not helpful to to naively say that shouldn't happen to you it is not helpful really to gaslight one another and say, that's not really that big of an issue. That's not that much of a problem. You shouldn't be that upset about that. That doesn't help anything or anyone. But rather, to address what each of us are going through, to identify it as difficult and hard, it is what it truly is. But greater than that, greater than the problem are the promises. Greater than as big as those problems are is the fullness, is the faithfulness of the promises of God that is at work right here and now, and we often do not see it. But we do know God is true, and he does not lie. He has not abandoned you, Jonathan essentially says, just as I will not abandon you. And so they renewed their covenant together. The Lord is between our descendants forever. That is such a great reality as believers. The bond of fellowship is a bond of eternal relationship between us forever. Nothing can break that which is eternal. No temporal thing should be able to break what is eternal. Not the color of the floor, not the color of the benches that we're about to decide on, right? Not how many fans we have in the a sanctuary, nothing that is temporal should be able to break the bond of fellowship that we have in Christ. And to allow the enemy a place in that is mutually destructive for both of us. The influence that we have as friends, and not just friends who like each other, but truly the fellowship that we have in the body of Christ, this serves for eternal purposes, bigger than my own happiness, greater than my own desires being met, but to serve and to encourage and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds while today is called today. Both chapters eighteen and twenty in the context are very hard realities for David, who's anointed to be king and yet in this time is not king. That doesn't come till second Samuel chapter five. Right? Ten years anointed To be king, no throne, no crown, no palace. Rather, his bed is a rock in a cave. His pillow, another rock in that same cave. His mighty men who who guard him, debtors, distressed, outcast men. People basically on the run. For 10 years. Jonathan's presence in David's life is not coincidence. I I was struck with this as I was just kind of thinking about this this morning. There is so much the writer, and and this is historical narrative, right? It's telling us what happened, but there is so much about Jonathan here that you could really just kind of gloss over. But the writer makes sure to include David and Jonathan's relationship, their friendship, In the midst of the hardship of David's relationship with Saul, not just for merely literary, uh, you know, what is it called? Uh, The opposite of one another, right? Not just to create this dichotomy, but this is really a teaching moment here. That what what this relationship is really meant to serve for eternal purposes. For us, it's a necessity the writer sees. And I think it's foundational to who David becomes as a king. The influence of friends helps determine the course that God has set for life. And so, who we surround ourselves with, who we take encouragement from, who we see as valuable, who we allow to, quote unquote, have a seat at our table, serves in ways that we will never see or consciously even know. But the benefit and the negative can be tremendous here. I believe Jonathan's influence and presence are a literal godsend to David to formulate the heart of a king that is like the heart of Jesus. I think about that because Jonathan shows nothing but kindness to David. And then you have 2 Samuel chapter 7 and one of the first actions that David does as king is he makes this proclamation throughout the empire and he says, where are the descendants of Saul? Now culturally if proclamation goes out like that you better run if you're a descendant of Saul. right? When you take the line, when you take the throne the first thing that a king would do would be to kill off any of the relationships and the family members the supporters Of the previous king. And so David, where are the descendants of Saul? That I may show kindness to. That's supernatural. Where did that kind of kindness come from? Yes, because he knows the Lord and the Lord is kind. But was he not equally shown that by Jonathan? When he was anointed to be king. When his father was king. Was David not in that exact same situation? And rather than the death penalty shown to him, he was shown kindness. David, impacted by that, calls out the same desire. Where is Saul's family? That I may show kindness to them. And the same idea. Listen, God, is, God ultimately was the one at work in all this. We know that. God was the one who is so often and is the mover and the changer, the transformer of our lives. But how does he do it? So often it is through relationship, through friendship, right? Maybe through a marriage relationship. But I think we take too lightly that it's also the relationships we form right here in the body of Christ. And those who we have been so tied and knitted together with, as scripture says, the body of Christ, each individual members of one another. That I need you, and you need me, that we may be healthy. And we need one another. And God has so sewn us together in that need. But what are we impacting each other with? What are we influencing each other toward here? Jonathan so clearly shows Christ one of the clearest in the Old Testament. And if you haven't been able to make the connection already, just in what we've seen of him, let me just simply read to conclude three New Testament passages that are of Jesus that Jonathan has so beautifully displayed. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, like Jonathan, laid aside his rights, his privileges. Etc., to serve us, the weaker vessel in humility. Flip over to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. In the beginning of the last discourse that Jesus has with his disciples, the last things that he could say, the last things that he could encourage them with, his last words, if you will, he first starts with an action. In John chapter 13, verse 2, During supper, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. Taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a the towel with which he was girded. Then he skipped down to verse 12 there. So when he had finished, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus, like Jonathan, sees the bigger picture And in submission to the Father's will, intentionally puts himself in a place of service. Not out of obligation, but out of obedience. Not because it was the Christian thing to do, but because the love of the Father. And then finally, pretty much throughout the rest of the Upper Room Discourse... Jesus, like Jonathan, sees our pain, our problems, our hurts. He doesn't gaslight us, but he speaks words of peace, comfort, and encouragement into our realities. John fourteen, one, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John fifteen, eleven, these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. John fifteen, thirteen through fourteen, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And John 17, basically the entire chapter, but specifically verse 26, I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, and I, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And after this, Jesus goes to the garden and to the cross in a complete change of what their expectations were. But he encouraged them while their hearts were troubled. He loved them while their hearts were troubled. He spoke truth to them when their hearts were troubled, and he reminded them of the Father's will. Jonathans are great. We need to look for Jonathans in our life. And surround ourselves with Jonathan. I have a Jonathan in my life, literally Jonathan Carmichael. I made him my program director, just so I made sure I had a Jonathan close by this summer. So I'm going need that in the summer. <laughs> yeah. But we may not all have Jonathan's in our life, scripturally speaking. You may not have a lot of people that you surround yourself with in your workplace, in you know, in your extended family. We have the body of Christ, but we are members of one another but more than that because we will fail one another we will fail one another more than that we have a faithful jonathan and we have jesus whom the spirit of god has given us to comfort and to convict and to remind one another or to remind us of what is true in the midst of our pains and problems and reality we may not have that physical fellowship but we always have christ but while we have it here, let us not be naive. Let us take full advantage of one another, not to take from one another, but let us take full advantage of one another to serve one another in the love of Christ, in the humility of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sowing the life of Christ in each one of us to be faithful friends to be faithful in fellowship to one another. I pray while today is called today and that we would not overlook the needs of one another, that we would see the hurts in one another. We would see the hardships and the pains in one another. God, we would know how to encourage one another and truly to demonstrate the love of God to one another. And that can only be done, God, in the humility of Christ to not put our needs before one another, in pride to not overlook the needs of one another to serve myself, to live in my comfort zone, God, and to remain isolated. I pray, God, that our hearts would be open and vulnerable with one another, that we would be able to speak, to share, to receive encouragement, God, and that the influence that we have in one another will be the very influence of Christ and the transformation of Christ into your image, God, as you have seen fit to sow us together in. Thank you for this gift. It truly is a gift, this fellowship, this love, this body that we've been given. We thank you for Jonathan and the work that you did through his life, and thousands of years later, God was still bearing fruit. That is the potential that's here. We pray this potential will be seen and the fruit be bearing in this body and would go forth from this place, affecting Bernie and the surrounding areas, God, truly, that Christ would be seen in us. In your name we pray. Amen.